Hello, everyone. Today, we are so lucky to have with us former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia in John Anderson. John was the leader of the National Party from 1999 to 2005. He was a member of the House of Representatives from 1989 to 2007, serving as Minister for Primary Industries and Energy, um, as well as Minister for Transport and Regional Development in the Howard government. After politics, Anderson launched a web-based interview program called Conversations with John Anderson, featuring interviews with public intellectuals. John, we're so lucky to have you on with us today. How are you? Uh, I'm well. I'm not at home, so I apologise for the informal office surroundings. I'm with my daughter's parents-in-law-to-be as we try and get a house ready for them as they approach their upcoming wedding. So that's all very exciting. Congratulations. Uh, but it's a great honour to be with you. Fantastic. I mean, I'm going to start uh, with conversations with John Anderson. I think for me, that was, um, it's played a massive role on, on this platform, on, on, on this podcast that we've been doing now for uh, quite some time with Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth. Um, you've had some huge, huge names on there, um, some fantastic conversation. For those who haven't uh, listened or, or seen it already, I do thoroughly recommend uh, checking it out. I, I want to know how it all started for you, John. How did that platform going on sort of YouTube and um, having these sort of conversations that this idea start? Uh, it started with two very passionate Australians, one of English birth, but now a nationalised Australian, deciding we should try and host a small dinner uh, in Sydney about four years ago for Neil Ferguson and his wife, Anne Hersey Ali. They were both in Australia. Uh, for a round of engagements, including, uh, in uh, Ali's case, uh, appearing on uh, Q&A. Uh, I think there's a British version of it on BBC. It's meant to be a current affair program of keeping you in touch with what's happening. It's just turned further and further into, a, uh, I suppose, a campaign material uh, edifice for uh, progressive values. But anyway, they were out here. He was, I think, talking to an economic forum organised by the... Um, the uh, financial uh, paper here. And we thought we'd host them to a small dinner and see how it went. And we got a really interesting conversation going with just 15 or so leading Australians, including former Prime Minister John Howard, uh, Treasurer Peter Costello, a couple of leading journalists on the understanding that they would not refer directly to the evening, uh, and some re very respected business and community leaders. A small function. What both of them had to say was so interesting that over coffee the next morning, we asked Neil Ferguson, would he consider recording a conversation? Because there was a lot there. There were some things that were off the record, but not much that uh, might be accessible in this age of social media for, for people to tap into his thinking on a wide range of topics. And he willingly agreed. And I'm eternally grateful to him for that. Uh, so we started to put them together, but I actually launched with Jordan Peterson, who just happened to be in Sydney at the time when we were getting ready to launch. And our tagline uh, is effectively, you can't get good public policy without a decent debate. Well, there's not a lot of decent debate around, by which I mean informed, um, the issues, uh, what you debate, not the personalities involved in the debate, reason, data, calm objectivity, the opportunity to ask questions, really consider things. We think it's integral to good public policy and therefore good political and public policy outcomes. 
and as I say, Jordan Peterson happened to be in Sydney. So I recorded one with him. And what he had to say was so utterly fascinating that we launched with that and it put us on the map overnight. It was just extraordinary. I'm quite a big fan of, of Jordan Peterson. I've read both his, uh, his books, his most, his most recent one as well. And I, I think it's um, really uh, something that we're definitely going to talk quite a bit about later on on this, uh, on this episode is the uh, need to almost um, use reason and, and logic when debating and also having, um, I think, one of the most difficult things in, in the social media age is to actually have a conversation with, with someone. I often say I feel like Twitter yes. is, isn't really a conversation. It's almost like a screaming match between uh, two different sides. Um, but we'll, 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 yes. go more in, we'll go more, more into that uh, shortly. Um, I, I want to take it back down a few years um, and go into your political career. So how did that start? Was it something that you knew from an early age that you wanted to be involved in? No, I'd always been interested in public policy and always interested in the art of persuasion. Uh, always interested in debate. Uh, but no, I was headhunted uh, and I was shell-shocked to discover that two of the political people or politically involved people, one a member, one an organiser, that I really respected, thought that I could and should stand for the federal parliament of the precocious age of 27. Uh, it didn't happen quite then. I ended up in the parliament at the age of 31. Um, uh, but no, it was not something that I'd planned. And if you'd told me as a young man, I'd not only end up as a federal parliamentarian, but eventually as a party leader and a deputy prime minister and from time to time an acting prime minister of Australia, I would have said, you've got rocks in your head. I never became addicted to it, I have to say, but it was an enormous honour and a very great privilege. And... I don't think I've ever been more interested in public policy than I am now because I think we've seen so much bad public policy, sometimes just by default, lack of action where action should have been taken, but much of it manipulated by people with agendas that I, I just don't agree with, I'm afraid, and that I think are counter to real freedom and to real human flourishing, to use an old-fashioned word, that I find myself on a very different page. Uh, but it, you know, it, it was an enormous honour, uh, and uh, believe it or not, I, was, uh, I think I was Australia's, uh, I remain the second youngest person to have become Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. I was in the role for six years, but I'd been in Cabinet for nearly a decade by then, and I wanted, I really craved time with my family. I know a lot of people say that, but I was also aware that I'd got, I'd got very stale, Maybe if there'd been long service arrangements for politicians, um, I might have recharged the batteries, but I was I was ready to do something else. And Australia seemed to be in such a good place. Very important to remember, there were some warning signs, but you've got to put things in context. The Berlin Wall had come down. Prosperity was everywhere. Living standards were rising rapidly in Australia. We'd had the, you know, the warning signs at about the time that I left indebtedness in America seemed to be running out of control, um, you know, cheap ninja loans and what have you. Um, it had 9-11, the Bali bombing. But I think I was probably in that vein uh, of, of, of Francis Fukuyama's um, thinking that, you know, you, you, you had uh, the end of history really was democracy, that essentially, despite some upsets, 
the march to democratic capitalism and all the freedoms and opportunities it gives was underway and wasn't going to be checked because it's very different now, which has spurred my deep concern and my definitely reignited a very deep interest in, in me about public policy because I don't think there are any guarantees that any of us will still be free in the West in 15 or 20 years' time. I really don't. It's interesting you mentioned um, about being free. We, we had um, uh, quite a senior uh, UK politician on, on our platform recently who mentioned that he um, he made the, the comment that China has spread more than just the, the, the virus. In some ways, they've spread an authoritarian regime across the globe where um, more and more governments uh, are taking um, greater power. And it's something that does... If I'm honest, as a, as a conservative, does concern me. I know it's my government in power now, and, uh, and I'm uh, and I'm sure uh, as time goes on, we can hopefully return to a smaller government. But I think across the globe, naturally, like I said, being conservative, I do kind of believe in small governments. Um, and we're now seeing, you know, for whatever reason, governments had to get bigger during you know the start of this pandemic. And I think in some ways it's it's understandable. But my concern is once you know you, you become a big government, how quickly do you want to go back into becoming a small government. Um, is that a concern that you have in Australia and, and generally across the globe? Yes, oh, very much so. Uh, government has now expanded its footprint into our lives in extraordinary ways that will make it very hard for it to extricate itself, even if politicians wanted to. Uh, one is that we are now unbelievably indebted and balancing people's expectations, and they're very high now, the government will meet their needs, keep them safe, uh, look after their health, their education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it'll be very demanding trying to balance the books and make it all happen without completely demolishing the next generation's economic hopes, because we, we essentially borrowed our way out of the GFC with our children's money, the great financial crisis. And now we're securitizing ourselves in the face of the pandemic with our children's money. And the legacy will be huge. But the other problem is that in the sort of, I suppose you'd say post-faith age of aggressive secularism, government really has become a sort of cradle-to-grave provider. Government, people look to government for everything. And the sort of technocrats, by which I mean the sort of, uh, I think Frank Peruti might call them uh, the expertologists who seem to think they know better than us and should control our lives, and they're everywhere. They're in the bureaucracy. There are an awful lot of them in academia. They're in the media. Uh, they're even in medicine now, as everything seems to be a health or a mental health issue. People who really will say, well, you know, um, uh, don't tell your children this is what we're teaching in the schools because, or don't tell your parents. Um, there's this great push, it seems to me, to try and shape everybody in the image of the technocracy, of the, of the expertology. And I think there's something profoundly anti-democratic anti in that. It, it's sort of seeing quasi-government organisations, I suppose you'd see, shaping us so we become functions of them rather than us exercising our will over governments, because increasingly uh, government instrumentalities and, and the people who people them, clumsily put, I suppose, 
have such great sway over us. Look at the, in this country, the role that the chief medical officers have had now as the politicians realizing in many cases, I suppose that they're not really trusted anymore and said, well, I'll take the advice or we, our government will take the advice of the, of the medical uh, chief officers. Whereas actually the politicians are elected to make tough decisions and they need to weigh carefully, I'm using this as an illustration, the advice from the chief medical officers and you know, the epidemiologists and all of those sorts of things and weigh it against the advice of the economists. How much can we really afford? At what yeah. point do we push our children's future into a darker place than COVID will? It's a real question. Uh, and it relates too to mental health and the education of our children. But we're only hearing one side. So this is an issue about health. So we get the health authorities out there. Now, I have nothing against them. Many of them in Australia have performed very well. But the problem is that they had thrown on them by governments, I suppose, in this age when we don't trust our politicians the right to make too many decisions and make too many calls. We actually elect our politicians to do that. And it's an illustration of the way in which things are breaking down. Um, we, should, we, we should entrust our politicians with the job of doing our will, interpreting it to their best of their ability, accepting responsibility. Sometimes they have to make very tough judgment calls and then we vote them out if we don't like them, if they think they've got it wrong in an election. Yeah. But you can't vote a chief medical officer out. And I don't want to pick on them, but I'm just using it as an illustration. I think that's really similar to the UK. So um, I think ours was slightly different. Well, uh, I think we had Sir Charles Walker, who was a Conservative MP, who regularly spoke out um, about lockdowns, not so much against lockdowns, but saying similar things to, to what you're saying, and other things need to be considered. And he essentially had quite a big attack on SAGE. Um, so it's, it's quite a, a big organisation here that essentially advises the government um, on, on medical issues. And um, he, he made a very similar comment to yourself, which was, you know, the medics uh, are not necessarily bad people but their job is to look at the medical side of things to save lives politicians job is to do a lot more than that they've got to make sure that you know the currency doesn't devalue that you know that they have a functioning economy that uh, provides for nhs um it's not as simple as you know locking uh, a country down um to save lives and he made a, a fantastic quote that's gone quite viral now which is you know we cannot cancel uh, we cannot um cancel life to preserve life um, and it seems to be um, in, in this country, we, we saw a lot of the, the sages, medical officers going to the media, almost saying, you know, we need to lock down a country. And um, if we don't, people are going to die. And then almost politicians acting on that, um, which was a kind of approach we saw. Um, and often it felt like these medical officers, the sage were almost influencing our politicians using the media source. Uh, using media sources so um, it's interesting to see there are some similarities to what's going on in the UK um, in in Australia. Um, it's an interesting one. There are two points. One is that Australians we're a bit addicted to regulation. You know, we always have been. We were the first country in the world to make seatbelt wearing compulsory, to ban smoking in public places, to ban advertising of tobacco, whole range of things. We, we're quite addicted to regulation here. We really are. Even Brits notice it. Americans certainly do. There's not that same emphasis on we demand our freedoms. Um, uh, but, and there's also a whiff of hypocrisy. Strangely enough, you see, I now find myself as an essential worker. I'm a farmer. So you get people on secure jobs demanding ever tighter lockdowns. But at the same time as they say the parliaments must sit 
So the politicians should be prepared to wear the risks. And we expect farmers to grow our food and we pay, expect people to deliver it and we pay, expect people to cook it and uh, you know, what have you, distribute it. We expect our medical supplies to be there. We expect our medical people to stay on board and working. So there is that lack of understanding, I think, that uh, you can't stop everything. And yeah. smacks of convenience for some of the people who are calling for ever tighter lockdowns um, funded by the public purse while small businesses burn, while many people still have to expose themselves to risk. Um, I'm, I'm troubled by that. On the other hand, I have to say, and I think I can see this in Britain from afar, and uh, certainly in this country, in the end, the Australian people are pretty pragmatic. And I've been a bit concerned at how easily they've been cowed during this, but they are now yeah. starting to say, no, lockdowns, we're not convinced anymore. Give them up. They're getting pretty strong on that. And I think that's probably true in Britain as well. I, I think to a certain extent that there was a re recent study that had shown that... Um, there are certain people that are in favour uh, of continuous lockdowns. So, you know, lockdowns being a, a thing that carries on, um, whether it's for the winter flu, uh, for other uh, situations. So it seems there is a, a real shift. I think it's alluding to what you said earlier, where people are actually expecting more and more from government. Um, mm. And my concern is, and I'd be interested to get your, your take on this, is if I was a, a bad person, you know, looking at what's happened in the UK, Australia, uh, America, across the globe, in terms of how easily and how um, quickly we've been able to lock down countries without necessarily, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a medical expert, but I would like a debate at least to happen. I'd like a, uh, an, an argument to, to be on the surface. If I was a, if a bad person overlooking this, I would be relatively... Um, enthusiastic about my chances of you know really causing some serious harm in, in the sense of in some ways it's been quite easy for um lockdowns to occur fear into people uh civil liberties being taken away um and i'm sure you know our first lockdowns i think that was probably a necessary thing and we didn't know much about the virus but now going forward um it does concern me a little does that concern you in, in australia yes. yes it does yeah i tend to agree with you i think we've been too easily cowed. And it's not very Australian to be easily cowed. You know, uh, I, my father fought in the Ninth Division in the North African campaign, uh, ultimately successful against Rommel under Montgomery. And Rommel commented uh, that uh, the Australians surely were the most elite of the elite soldiers uh, in the entire British Empire. Strong, resilient, courageous men who were incredibly effective on the fighting field. Uh, I, I am struck by the way in which we have fled for security and not stopped to think. Well, I know human beings will always choose security if they feel endangered over freedom. But I think it's been out of proportion. And that's the key issue, isn't it? It's a matter of proportion. And if you stop and think about it, during the Blitz, I'm certain that everyone would have agreed that anyone who showed any light in London through their parlour window or to the front of the street uh, should have been told by the police, you know, cover that up, you're putting lives at risk. It was an extreme situation which demanded the most extraordinary obedience, very little room for anybody to conscientiously object, even though we recognise the importance of the right to conscientiously object. In extreme cases, even that should be temporarily suspended. 
but it's a matter of proportion and how quickly you move out of it. And the British people in the end moved out even faster than I would have. They voted. You know, the man who really basically got preserved freedom for us uh, in, in the 20th century, Churchill, out of office the minute they thought the war had been won. They were saying, we want to go back to a different way of living. Will we see an equivalent here? There's some germs of it happening in Australia. Again, though, like so many good causes, the danger is always that they're overtaken by activists. You know, so the left activists will take over on one cause, the right activists on the other. And many of these people are, are those who have even less feel for our, the classically understood underpinnings of our freedoms than mainstream Australians who have, I don't mean to be too patronising here, I really, I don't want to sound that way at all, but we haven't had to think about it. They've just been there. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't studied them, we haven't thought about them. And in our case, we were largely handed them. We have what's called a Washminster. So our people were able to pick up the best of the British model uh, in terms of the House of Commons, I suppose you'd say, the American model of Senate. So you call it a Washminster. And Australians have heroically fought for freedom, but haven't really, they didn't have to, uh, fought to defend it, sorry, but they didn't have to fight to secure it in the first place. It was largely right. given to us, and we've taken it for granted. And something like this should make us stop and think. You know, you think of Robert Menzies, our longest-serving Prime Minister, agreeing with Roosevelt from the other side of politics from America, that, you know, that freedom of speech, association, religion, um, uh, pro private property and so forth, they're a bundle. They go together weaken one of them and you weaken all of them. They're a package deal, but they're gold. They're absolute gold. And it's a terrible thing that I think we're switched to saying, well, we ought to regulate the way we behave rather than do it out of respect for freedom because a genuine respect for freedom always requires you to respect the other person's freedoms at all. You're only free to the extent that you don't impair other people's freedoms. Uh, it's maybe the golden rule. It's do unto others as you'd have them do unto yourself. A much better way than what we now have in so many Western countries. I mean, 45 years of it in now in Australia, gradually building, competing human rights. Well, this unbelievable. You compete for your human rights against other fellow Australians, if you stop and think about it, under this incredible architecture of anti-discrimination law and architecture around the country, uh, headed up by people who often seem to have to have a purpose in life, to find their own purpose in life and to paint the country as far more racist than it actually is or whatever it happens to be in the name of battling discrimination. It appeals to our lowest and basest instincts yeah. uh, you know, to respond to the law if we must, rather than to say, I have a responsibility to my neighbour. Yeah. And if I want to be free, then I need to recognise their freedoms. And I just think, uh, well, to go even further to loving your neighbour, I mean, what, what, what more noble idea could there be? Maybe ought to, people ought to go and read 1 Corinthians again, uh, 13, you know, the famous chapter on love. It's so hackneyed or was that people just groan. And yet it's packed with a wisdom that far exceeds the technocrats and their endless architecture designed to regulate us into not offending one another. You've taken me on to uh, a section that I, I really wanted uh, to get your, your thoughts on. Um, I mean, there's so many fascinating things we can talk about your time as Deputy Prime Minister, but one thing I would actually 
love to discuss is actually that time in history itself. Um, what were some of the big challenges you've sort of the big sorry the big changes you've noticed in society from when you started as deputy prime minister uh, to where it's ended? I, I'll give you an example. You know, we, we're kind of alluding to it there uh, with almost this obsession about language that we, that we, we currently use. Um, I, I mean, I don't think there seems to be a day go by where a, a new word or term is uh, considered offensive. Um, a great example we're going through and we're talking a lot about is uh, Mr. and Mrs um which according to some shouldn't be used um what sort of changes between 1996 to 2007 did you notice and were you forced to change at all um look the really rapid pace of change i think to my way of thinking the, the sort of heart first harbinger was 9 11 when we realized right. that there were people who loathed the idea of western freedoms and it gave rise to the very strident criticism uh, of what Richard Dawkins called the Abrahamic, Abrahamic uh, uh, religions. Um, you know, he said he lost all respect for them and the aggressive atheism coupled with the sort of early, really strident attacks on our culture that's now boiled over into the whole sort of get rid of all the statues because our past is illegitimate and we want our children to understand that they shouldn't defend our culture because it's racist, it's supremacist, uh, it's patronising, it's cruel. Um, you know, you daren't mention that the first culture in the world to say that slavery is wrong and it ought to be abandoned was, of course, Britain. Uh, you daren't mention the tens of thousands of members of the Royal Navy, and I think overwhelmingly they would have been white men, uh, died seeking to enforce the ending of slavery. Uh, were they racist? Putting their lives on the neck uh, or, their, you know, on, on, on the block, uh, a neck on the block, so to speak, uh, uh, to, to enforce the end of slavery? Uh, it's a little known chapter of history, and it's were the men who stayed behind so the women and children could survive as the Titanic sank and drowned in freezing waters? Uh, was that, uh, you know, I mean, really, people need to stop and think. And it's Salt Sanitson's line, isn't it? The dividing line between evil is not, as it happens, between man and woman or black and white or anything like that. Uh, it, it's somewhere across every human heart. And as, as, as um, uh, Jonathan Haidt so eloquently puts it, we're now teaching our children that life is a battle between good people and bad people. So, of course, we're saying to your children, uh, you know, you're perfect, you're on the right side, virtue is with you, uh, and you must go out and oppose all those other bad people, rather than being honest with them and saying, uh, you know, you're actually uh, yourself, a mixture of good and bad, and we want to draw out the best, but we want you to start to discipline uh, your less helpful habits, which will vary from child to child, but they all have them. Any parent knows that if they're honest. We, we, we ill-equip them for life and we ill-equip our society by this reinvention of tribalism, which we now call identity politics, which threatens the garden in the jungle that the democracies have been for the last couple of hundred years. I think you mentioned identity politics, certainly. That's something that's discussed a lot on this platform, and it's safe to say uh, where uh, our guests and ourselves are probably not the, the biggest fans of it. Um, a growing trend in, in, in the UK and 
um, and in the States in particular, you, you can see it seems people nowadays, they almost identify the minorities that they want to help and then select policies uh, for them rather than just looking for policies that seek to benefit the whole of society. What, what, yeah. what are your thoughts on the, on, on the general shift in identity politics and where do you see it going? Because the, the counter argument that... Um, for me, it worries me. Right? I think being of a certain age, being on social media, I see a, a lot of, you know, a lot of identity politics. Um, and, and so it does deeply concern me. A lot of people would say to me, it's not really that much of a big deal. You look at the um, the UK general election uh, in 2019, when we sort of had the far left Jeremy Corbyn. And in the end, he uh, got the result of the worst Labour results since 1935. So the, the argument could be that, you know, social media is one thing, which I do agree with, you know, the real world is something else. Um, but for me, it concerns me that I, I see a, a growing trend of identity politics in mainstream parties that I don't think maybe existed 10, 15 years ago. Um, and that does uh, ring some alarm bells. What, what are your thoughts on, on identity politics in, in, in general? And, and do you think it is growing? Oh, I definitely think it's growing. Uh, uh, critical race theory as part yeah. of, you know, critical theory. Critical race theory would be the best known aspect of it. It must collapse under its own weight in the end. Because if you say that every profession should have equal numbers of every person of every form of identity, uh, including allowing for intersectionality, so those people who have several points at which they can claim to belong to an identity group based on, uh, you know, this idea of intersectionality. Uh, and they must be guaranteed quotas because it has nothing to do with their motivation or their ability or their skill level. They ought to be properly represented in every... Mind you, they don't talk about professions like prison wardening or um, collecting, um, you know, uh, uh, janitor's works or, or, or even firefighting. It's really quite interesting. It's 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 always very select the sort of um, professions where they will say uh, everybody ought to be fully represented on numerical bases. Now, what it does, because it collapses under its own weight in the end, it has to. A, it's totalitarianism. B, it's unworkable, absolutely unworkable. Uh, C, it will sap energy and vitality and innovation, unbelievably, because it'll draw everything down to the lowest common denominator. Um, uh, D, it appeals to uh, our willingness, if we have it, to be regulated, however reluctantly, rather than appeals to our better angels. And the starkest contrast you can make, I think, is you know, the famous, hackneyed perhaps, but famous words uh, of Martin Luther King, I look forward to the day when my children are judged by the content of the character, not the colour of their skin. Well, we're reverting now. Uh, yeah, you judge by the colour of your skin. And any, in the name of intersectionality, anything else that you can muster up that might help your, uh, if you like, burnish your aristocratic credentials in terms of victimhood, the new aristocrats. But it's not helpful. There, of course, there are genuine victims, many of whom are simply never heard of today. They don't get a look in at all. Uh, if, if, but then there are those who claim victimhood who have legitimate claims to victimhood. Uh, there are many who claim victimhood who have none. And I can think of a couple of prominent English people recently who seem to claim some sort of victimhood status that I can't see for the life of me, but they get an awful lot of airplay out of it. Um, and... You know, you know, here's the point. 
I actually care about people. I probably sound a bit heartless, sort of sounding slightly mocking of the idea of victimhood. I'm not at all. If you're a genuine victim, I mean, I, my wife and I really do try very hard to, to be generous when it comes to helping people who are locked into grinding poverty or can't educate their children or whatever it is. Uh, and charitable is the right response to genuine victimhood, not screaming slogans and marching in the streets, in my view. Yeah. Um, but, but here's the point. So often those people are locked into victimhood and just used. They, they don't win at all. They're just weaponized and used. It's something that you said there about um, sounding cold. Do you think maybe it's a criticism or maybe it's an issue that people, anything towards the right of centre have, which is we tend to, I suppose, focus on reason and logic rather. I think sometimes what the left is, uh, or plays on the emotional aspect. And I think... um, one of the a really interesting talk I listened to on Jordan Peterson, who talked about how what the left is quite good at is, um, which I don't agree with at all, is um, they they will be able to shut down, let's say John Anson's making a really good point like you've made many here today, but let's say he just doesn't show enough empathy, he doesn't care, therefore his argument doesn't stand. And it's almost their way of um, getting rid of your argument and almost denouncing your, your thoughts and, and process. How... Do you combat that going forward? So whether it's yourself, other politicians, other, other people, how do you um, go against it? Because like you said, you, you've done some pretty amazing things for your country um, in, in the last 30, 40 years. How do you denounce that kind of aspect? Because there is that emphasis. I think generally as conservatives, we are very focused on reason and logic. And sometimes we do some, don't always connect with the empathy side of things. It's a very good point. Uh, one thing I would say is that uh, survey after survey shows that, uh, in fact, when it comes to parting with the contents of their wallets, conservatives tend to be more generous in helping people in genuine need than any other group in the community or any other, you know, that I'm broadly aware of. They're not bad at it at all. They're very generous. Um, but they, I suppose in terms of policy, it's a, re- it, it's a good point. And I would argue that we need to be very careful. I need to be careful. I talk to myself that I don't sound as though I lack empathy. But you see, in the race between um, feeling, and, and we're almost in the age of, you know, the old, um, the old concept, I think, therefore I am. It's now I feel, therefore I am. I am what I feel. And that's why yeah. it's so important that you, you don't say um, a, a challenge that on the basis of science or data or circumstance or simple observation because that is to challenge the person's very soul and identity because if that's what they feel they are that's what they are the problem with this sort of logic i remember our treasurer peter costello when we we're in government sometimes expressing frustration publicly and privately that we were painted as heartless and yet our economic policies saw record levels of employment and significantly rising living standards and when it came to, for example, your uh, international responsibility after the tsunami in uh, Indonesia, uh, back in the days when a billion dollars was a lot of money, we donated a billion dollars to our nearest neighbour. They helped them through a terrible tragedy. Uh, but it's those things have glossed over. And, oh, no, no, you're heartless because you say, you know, um, you have conservative values on family or whatever. You know, I mean, in the end, 
the abandonment of reason and the taking up or the, 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 the misunderstanding that feeling is thinking will land us all upside in, in, in a ditch. It really will. You have to make sure feelings are, of course, incredibly important. But if they're not guided by reason and by facts, well, at the ultimate example of it, say, oh, well, it's a hot day, I'm going to dive into this river despite the warning sign that says there's crocodile because I feel I need a swim and I, that'll cool me down. You can't go on ignoring the warnings, the data, the science, the facts. As a friend of mine said to me the other day, wokeism will be like a grasshopper splattered on the nose of a speeding bullet if the belligerence that we're now seeing around the world involves us in conflict again. It has no answers to the big questions of life at all. The big questions in life demand in a democracy like yours and mine, that we focus not on the things that divide us, but on the things that we have in common. So it doesn't matter where you live in Britain or your gender pronoun or the colour of your skin or in Australia, whether you come from the Northern Territory or Tasmania or, you know, you're young or old, you have certain interests amongst them, um, freedom and the opportunity for a job, uh, the idea of the rule of law being preserved, uh, the inherent recognition of the dignity and the worth of every individual. Those things should be uniting us, not dividing us. Is that... Um... Is there a difference between city and urban thought? So in, in the UK, I've got this really uh, big, uh, I wouldn't say agenda, but something that we talk about a lot on this platform, which is the difference in London and surrounding areas of London compared to the rest of the UK. It's almost like two different countries. I think in, in London, you have a lot of people who seem to care about things. The harsh reality, most of this country doesn't. The, the milkman in Dover, the lorry drives in Newcastle, um, they don't whether they're black, brown, white, I don't, they don't care about kneeling, they don't care about a lot of these things that I think a lot of London people seem to have started uh, agendas, particularly younger uh, people in, in city life. And I, I would argue that's similar in New York and in maybe LA, maybe Auckland, maybe Sydney, where it seems to be almost a, a, a group of people who quite frankly are, are so not in touch with the rest of society. Because um, in, in my my thought process would be that you know the milkman in Dover just wants shelter, put you know put food in his child's mouth, get a better standard of living for his children. Whether you know issues on kneeling, issues on removing a statue, I I don't think he he or she really cares at all about. Is that similar in Australia? Do you see a massive difference in mm. city life yeah. in, in the big cities compared to everywhere else? Yeah, there's a massive disconnect between the view of the elites, the technocrats, the expertologists that I sort of referred to earlier, massive disconnect, and it's growing. Yeah. Uh, and I would say middle Australians feel very confused about it and uncertain about how to handle it. You also get, it's interesting, that's not so much a city regional divide, I don't think, in Australia. That's the really interesting thing about it. It tells you that political leadership must have something to do with it. Uh, I think that um, there's quite a difference in the political outlook now between Melbourne and Sydney, for example. Right. Um, quite significant. In the, one sort of teller of that was when same-sex marriage was legalised in Australia, 
there was a, a, a poll taken, uh, a vote was taken, and the, uh, across federal electorates in Australia. Um, I think there were 16 out of 150 seats that voted no. 12 of them were not in rural areas at all. They were in Western Sydney, right. in our biggest city. So there's a, a, a quite conservative and traditionalist sort of perspective in, in, in our biggest city that's not duplicated in Melbourne. And right. I, I, it's just an interesting observation that um, I, I think there are some serious disconnects on, uh, you know, I mean, the research suggests that middle parents are middle income, middle society, middle class people in Australia are deeply perplexed by uh, the whole issue of ideology in the classroom. Mm. They don't like it at all. They want high standards of education and they're very aware that Australian education standards are slipping despite the fact that we've roughly doubled in real terms the amount of money spent educating every one of our mm. children over the last 15 years or so. Um, and parents are recognising they're not getting it. So a lot of them are voting with their feet going elsewhere, looking for you know, better education. But we also know from the research that they're really concerned about ideology in the classroom and what their rights are. If they're confronted yep. uh, you know, with a situation where they want to say to their child, look, um, I disagree with you. And I want you to think about this, or I don't want you to do this, that or the other. Um, particularly in relation to, um, sorry, I can't believe That's I left that on. <laughs> I suppose <laughs> everyone... Um, uh, well, you know, things like gender dysphoria. Parents are really concerned uh, that um, they're not allowed to reason, or they're really worried about whether they are allowed to reason with their with their child who may have difficulties in this area. Heartbreaking situation for a lot of children and parents. Uh, but there's again a serious disconnect between the absolute insistence of many of our medical people who are involved in. Yeah. in gender dysphoria issues, that the affirmation model is the only one that you must apply. Different in Britain because you've had Kira Bell versus Tavistock, very profound uh, and extraordinary decision and a very welcome one. It's, teaching's a bit of an interesting topic for us in the UK because um, there's been a lot of arguments that now teachers in this country are almost taking on in certain uh, examples the role of parenting so that there's this argument where that they're doing almost um that they're, they're doing aspects of something that a parent should do um rather than complementing each other teaching and parenting it seems to be teachings become um it's, it's taken a step further and there was something in scotland recently where they're trying to legalize um the aspects where if from the age of five if you, you know, decide you want to change your, uh, your, your gender or go for that process um, your parent basically can have no say. It's the teacher yeah. um, and that conversation. So it's it's a, it's a really growing uh, talking point in this country, and um, and and I can see a massive again um, uh, arguments brewing from on, on both sides on this. Um, I, I'm going to touch on finally on the uh, um, identity politics side of things before uh, moving on to some uh, recent uh, things that have happened in, in particular the AUK US agreement. Um, with regards to uh, finishing off on identity politics, I think that there is an emergence here in this country. Um, I think in the states, maybe in sort of the big big corporate world, which is you know it, it's almost 
if you can, you know, the greater minority are or the, the higher you can move up the, the social ladder. So if you can prove, you know, you are the most oppressed when it comes to history, uh, you're therefore most special and therefore top of the chain rather than being who is best, more, who has the most knowledge, who has the best qualities. It seems, you know, if you can prove for your ancestry, religion, race, sexuality, you know, that you've suffered the greatest of injustices, you're the ones, you know, we should seek guidance from and we should almost learn from. Again, is that something you're seeing in Australia or is that more yeah. you'd okay? Yes, it's there. This attempt to denigrate everything that's gone before us uh, and uh, to cast dispersions on somebody who may have acted according to the social norms of the day, but in every other way, so slavery being an obvious example in your country, somebody who might have had some sort of arms and length minor interest in slavery. Well, it was a great evil. I can't think of anything worse. Let me make it plain than the idea that one human being could own and abuse and trade another human being. Uh, but, uh, you know, to this, this whole problem, you know, so if you've got something against your name, you are anathema uh, and your statue should be pulled down and we will not talk about the generous yeah. things that you might have done. You will not talk about how in later life you might have even changed your mind about something like slavery. We won't talk about what you did for educating poor children, for example. Um, uh, you know, th this is this whole problem of dividing the world into good people and bad people and not allowing for the reality that we're all a mixture of both. And so you do indeed now see this um, extraordinary judgmentalism, this extraordinary belief that nobody who's gone before us knew anything or had any wisdom, that it all now resides with people here and now and, you know, what you've really also got now is the joining of business leadership, you know, multi-multi-billionaires um, um, in sort of thongs and T-shirts, handing down great moral um, uh, sort of tablets, if you like, along with um, celluloid heroes from Hollywood. Um, and we don't pay enough attention to the people who really understand because they spent a lifetime understanding it human nature, the conundrum of good and evil, the whole significance of um, universalism, which uh, one of our best authors um, here in this country, uh, our most experienced foreign affairs writer, Greg Sheridan, has talked about universalism usually attributed, uh, if you trace it back, to the impact on the way we think of the Apostle Paul arguing that there was no division to be made between man and woman, black and white, or Greek and Gentile, a Jew, whatever. Um, that's a novel concept. And, uh, you know, it, it became a Western concept. And now we want to denigrate it. And it's as though those who, who, who want to burn down what left, what's little is left of the cultural house that we've been living in, there's not much of it left. They want to burn down and, and bomb the rest of it, but they, they don't have another home to show us. Where's the better place that we're supposed to be moving to? Because I don't see much evidence of it. One of the things that I, I do feel is that I think there's a lot of hurt and damaged people who are just heading out, out of anger and frustration. Uh, not all, but I do, I do think that's a big problem. With uh, the disintegration of our society and even our home lives and our education has left a lot of people not only lacking in forensic and thinking tools, but also in an angry state of mind where they feel, and remember we're in the age of feeling, that they're 
identity is not being properly recognised. And they're starting to take that anger to the streets. And that's not aimed at left-wing activists. It's aimed at angry people right across the political spectrum. You know, calm reason and a deep commitment to loving your neighbour seem to me to be absolutely critical to building and maintaining a society in which human beings can all flourish, all citizens can flourish. We, we talked about this earlier, um, and I think it's important, um, given the month we're in, that we had recently had the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, uh, and uh, many of our listeners will know, some may not, that you are actually the acting prime minister uh, when, when um, that, that happened. What was it like during that 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 stage? We, we spoke to John Howard about it, and he talked about the you know, the significance of what, and, and you've mentioned it today as well, that the post 9-11 uh, era. Um, I, I want to ask, what was it like specifically, you know, being the acting prime minister at that time when you see those planes go into, into the towers? Um, and what do you think the impact it's had? I know you touched on it a bit um, earlier, the, the impact of 9-11. Well, uh, the question in two parts for me personally, I mean, it was deeply concerning because I had this overwhelming sense that this could have been the first of a series of rolling attacks. Uh, and that was our advice uh, as we, you know, rushed to put in place such security arrangements as had been developed and, you know, uh, in anticipation of these sorts of things. They were pretty inadequate by today's standards, but they were all tripped because we thought perhaps, you know, there'll be more of this. And I remember thinking that I've got experts everywhere and there are people I respected then and respect even more now when I look at how well they responded. But I was very conscious that the buck stopped with me. And it's an extraordinary situation. You can't run to the edge of the bridge and dive overboard like the captain of a certain sinking ship. You can't do it. You're there. And I remember praying earnestly, you know, not <laughs> my interests have to be com put completely to one side. If I get minced, that doesn't matter what matters is that I fulfil my responsibilities to the Australian people here to the best of my ability. So please don't let me miss something that might be critical in securing the safety and well-being of Australians. I remember that very clearly. Uh, what did it mean? Well, it meant that the end of naivety, it had been pretty short-lived, I think, but the sort of, I think we were a bit hubristic about it. Um, you know, after, after, after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, well, democracy's won and, you know, peace and prosperity and dare I say it, the great American way, uh, will be something that everyone will want to emulate. It's a very interesting idea, isn't it? It was a Karl Marx idea, of course, that the end of history would be a um, utopian Marxist state right around the world. And that's what Marxists believe in, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is why we shouldn't be surprised when we see a committed Marxist wanting global domination. Um, uh, and then Francis Fukuyama sort of uh, playing on that said, well, no, as it's turned out, the end of history is democracy. 9-11 was a big wake-up call. Evil had not gone away. People who loathed the Western model of freedom, and I don't want to claim that we're entirely perfect, not for a moment, but there are things that are offensive about the way we do things to the rest of the world. I know that. And we should wake up to ourselves on some of them. Uh, but, um, you know, nonetheless... No one has developed a system, you know, better dedicated to creating a, a garden in the jungle than our forefathers who gave us the rule of law, common law, 
the vote so that because we're so good, we need the vote. They're so bad, we need the vote. You know, the institutions of freedom, uh, they're all to be strengthened and used to improve our society rather than torn down and put it at risk. And really, 9-11 was a big warning. And we've not, it was closely followed by the great financial crisis, which in some ways it accelerated, I think. Uh, and we've not ended, really, we've been a, a spiralling and uncertain into, into ever deeper uncertainty ever since. Um, and uh, the ructions around the world are truly concerning. But I have to say that the coming together of Great Britain, of America and Australia in this new partnership, which ostensibly centres on Australia acquiring nuclear submarine technology, but which really signifies far more I think, a recognition by the democracies that we actually do believe in democracy. We do believe in freedom. We do believe in our model, imperfect as it may be, capable of great improvement as it may be, weakened as it may be. We believe in it and we want to defend it. That, I think, is very profound and very encouraging. Let, let, let's talk more about the UK-US agreement. Um, it, it's been talked about quite a bit in the UK. Um, obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a quite a, a recent thing that, that's happened. Um, judging from your comments there, you're supportive of it. Um, do, do you think this will be um, uh, play a massive role coming forward to these three countries? Yes. Is, it, is it good to see these sort of three massive democracies coming together? Yes. Now, I think actually it's, uh, particularly in this country, we are so sobered by the way in which China is behaving. And we're so gobsmacked, I think, by the rhetoric you know, oh, we shouldn't have nuclear submarines. Well, how many of you got China? Mm-hmm. And how many are you building? And why are you building them? Um, uh, and I see, you know, you, you've had a warship that's gone through uh, exercising freedom of passage. That's been seen as provocative by the Chinese. The international rule of the law. Well, now they want to join the trade pact out here, the Pacific Trade Pact. Um, China's decided a, probably a clever move in a way, in some ways. Uh, to uh, apply for uh, joining. Well, are they going to obey the international trade laws or are they going to thumb their nose at them in the way that they've thumbed their nose at our trade? At, at, at our trade, uh, Because they're ostensibly offended because we thought there should be an inquiry into COVID and we said, no, we don't think Huawei should be um, you know, allowed to uh, be integrated into uh, our telecommunications systems. Well, goodness me. Um, uh, uh, China has brought this on itself, but we should perhaps be thankful that it's helped us crystallise uh, the real nature of the world that we live in in our minds, and that we can be thankful that there is enough strength in our leadership, particularly in this country. I, I respect Scott Morrison and what he's been able to achieve here a great deal. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew, who was a great statesman, of course, Chinese himself from Singapore, warned. 20 years ago, about the time of 9-11, uh, in an unrelated uh, conversation that was recorded somewhere, that um, China would not have to do much militarily, just flex its economic muscles against anybody it disapproved of. Uh, and unless those countries then pulled together, yeah. not just the country being attacked, but other countries pulled together and said to China, no, it's not going to be like this, then... Um, uh, the, the world would be in deep trouble. Well, his words, as so often, have proved to be very prescient. 
Uh, and so I don't for a moment wish the Chinese people anything other than good fortune. <laughs>